Microsoft Story Classic, bringing to you recordings of old storybooks. Sir Gibby, Episode 25 Rumors Almost from the first moment of his being domiciled on Lashkar, what with the good food, the fine exercise, the ex exquisite air, and his great happiness, Gibby began to grow, and he took to growing so fast that his legs soon shot far out of his whimsy garment. But of all places, that was a small matter in Gorm Garnet where the kilt was as common as trousers. His wary limbs grew larger without losing their firmness or elasticity. His chest, the effort in running uphill, constantly alternated with the relief of running down, rapidly expanded, and his lungs grew hearty as well as powerful, till he became at length such in wind and muscle that he could run down a wayward sheep almost as well as Oscar. And his nerve grew also with his body and strength, till his coolness and courage were splendid. Never, when the tide of his affairs ran most in the shallows, had Gibby had much acquaintance with fears, but now he had forgotten the taste of them, and would have encountered a wild highland bull alone on the mountain, as readily as Tack crummy up in her bar. One afternoon, Donal, having got a half-holiday by the help of a friend and the favor of Mistress Jean, came home to see his mother, and having greeted her, set out to find Gibby. He had gone a long way, looking and calling, without success, and had come in sight of a certain tiny lock or tarn that filled a hollow of the mountain. It was called the Deed Pot and the old awe, amounting nearly to terror, with which in his childhood he had regarded it, returned upon him. The moment he saw the dark gleam of it, nearly as strong as ever, an awe indescribable arising from mingled feelings of depth and darkness and lateral recesses, and unknown, the pot, though small in surface, was truly of unknown depth and had elements of dread about it, telling upon far less active imaginations than Donald's. While he stood gazing at it, almost afraid to go nearer, a great splash that echoed from the steep rocks surrounding it brought his heart into his mouth, and immediately followed a loud barking in which he recognized the voice of Oscar. Before he had well begun to think what it could mean, Gibby appeared on the opposite side of the lock, high above its level, on the top of the rocks, forming its basin. He began instantly a rapid descent towards the water, where the rocks were so steep and the footing so precarious that Oscar wisely remained at the top, nor attempted to follow him. Presently the dog caught sight of Donald, where he stood on a lower level, whence the water was comparatively easy of access, and starting off at full speed joined him with much demonstration of welcome, but he received little notice from Donald, whose gaze was fixed with much wonder and more fear on the descending Gibby. Some twenty feet from the surface of the lock he reached a point whence clearly in Donald's judgment there was no possibility of farther descent. But Donald was never more mistaken, for that instant Gibby flashed from the face of the rock head foremost. 
like a fishing bird into the lake. Donald gave a cry and ran to the edge of the water, accompanied by Oscar, who all the time had showed no anxiety, but had stood wagging his tail and uttering now and then a little half-disappointed whine. Neither now were his motions as he ran other than those of frolic and expectancy. When they reached the lock, there was Gibbie, already, but a few yards from the only possible landing place, swimming with one hand, while on the other arm he held a baby lamb, its head lying quite still on his shoulder. It had been stunned by the fall, but might come round again. Then first Donald began to perceive that the crater was growing an athlete. When he landed, he gave Donald a merry laugh of welcome, but without stopping, flew up the hill to take the lamb to its mother. Fresh from the icy water, he ran so fast that it was all Donald could do to keep up with him. The deed pot then taught Gibby what swimming it could, which was not much, and what diving it could, which was more, but the nights of the following summer, when everybody on mountain and valley were asleep and the moon shone, he would often go down to the dar, and throwing himself into its deepest reaches, spend hours in lonely sport with water and wind and moon. He had by that time learned things knowing which a man can never be lonesome. The few goats on the mountain were for a time very inimical to him. So often did they butt him over, causing him sometimes severe bruises, that at last he resolved to try conclusions with them. And when next a goat seized him by the horns, and wrestled with him mightily, this exercise once begun, he provoked engagements, until his strength and aptitude were such, and so well known, that not a billy goat on Glashgar would have to do with him. But when he saw that every one of them ran at his approach, Gibby, who could not bear to be in discord with any creature, changed his behavior towards them, and took equal pains to reconcile them to him, nor rested before he had entirely succeeded. Every time Donald came home, he would bring some book of verse with him, and leading Gibby to some hollow, shady or sheltered as the time required, would there read him ballads, or songs, or verse more stately as mood or provision might suggest. The music, the melody, and the cadence, and the harmony, the tone, and the rhythm, and the time, and the rhythm, instead of growing common to him, rejoiced Gibby more and more every feast, and with ever-growing reverence he looked up to Donald. But if Donald could have looked down into Gibby's bosom, he would have seen something there beyond his comprehension, for Gibby was already in the kingdom of heaven, and Donald would have to suffer before he would begin even to look about for the door by which a man may enter into it. I wonder how much Gibby was indebted to his constrained silence during all these years, that he lost by it, no one will doubt, that he gained also a few will admit, though I should find it hard to say what and how great, I cannot doubt it bore an important part in the fostering of such thoughts and feelings and actions as were beyond the vision of Donald, poet as he was growing to be. While Donald read, rejoicing in the music both of sound and sense, Gibby was doing something besides. He was listening with the same ears and trying to see with the same eyes, which he brought to bear upon the things Janet taught him out of the book. 
Already, those first weekly issues, lately commenced of a popular literature, had penetrated into the mountains of Gorm Garnet. But whether Donal read Blind Harry from a thumbed old modern edition, or some new tale or neat poem from the Edinburgh Press, Gibby was always placing what he heard by the side, as it were, of what he knew, asking himself in this case and that what Jesus Christ would have done or what he would require of a disciple. There must be one right way, he argued. Sometimes his innocence failed to see that no disciple of the Son of Man could, save by fearful failure, be in such circumstances as the tale or ballad represented. But whether successful or not in the individual inquiry, the boy's mind and heart, in this silent, unembarrassed brooding, as energetic as it was peaceful, expanded upwards when it failed to widen, and the widening would come after. Gifted from the first of his being, with such a rare drawing to his kind, he saw his utmost affection, dwarfed by the words and deeds of Jesus, beheld more and more grand the requirements made of a man who would love his fellows as Christ loved them. He would run to do the thing he had learned yesterday, when as yet he could find no answer to the question of today. Thus as the weeks of solitude and love and thought and obedience glided by, the reality of Christ grew upon him, till he saw that very, the very rocks and heather and the faces of the sheep like him, and felt his presence everywhere and ever coming nearer. Nor did his imagination aid only a little in the growth of his being. He would dream waking dreams about Jesus, gloriously childlike. Although he could read the New Testament for himself now, he always preferred making acquaintance with any new portion of it first from the mouth of Janet. Her voice made the word more of a word to him, but the next time he read it was sure to be what she had then read. When the winter came with its frost and snow, Gibby saved Robert much suffering. At first Robert was unwilling to let him go out alone in stormy weather, but Janet believed that the child's doing the old man's work would be specially protected. All through the hard time, therefore, Gibby went and came, and no evil befell him. Neither did he suffer from the cold, for a sheep having died towards the end of the first autumn, Robert, in view of Gibby's coming, necessitated the skin and dressed it with the wool upon up it, and of this, between the three of them, they had made a coat for him, so that he roamed the hill like a savage in a garment of skin. It became, of course, before very long, well known about the country that Mr. Duff's crofters upon Glashgar had taken in and were bringing up a foundling, some said an innocent, some said a wild boy, who helped Robert with his sheep and Janet with her cow, but could not speak a word of either Gaelic or English. By and by, strange stories came to be told of his exploits, representing him as, a, as gifted with bodily powers as much surpassing the common as his mental faculties were assumed to be under the ordinary standard. The rumor concerning him swelled as well spread, mainly from the love of the marvelous common in the region. I suppose until, towards the end of his second year on Glashgar, the notion of Gibby and the imaginations of the children of Darside was far-fetched. Glashgar from time immemorial, and of whom they had been hearing all their lives, 
and although they had never heard anything bad of him, that he was wild, that he wore a hairy skin, they could do more than any other boy dared attempt, that he was dumb, and that yet, for this also was said, sheep and dogs and cattle and even the wild creatures of the mountain could understand him perfectly. These statements were more than enough, acting on the suspicion and fear belonging to the savage in their own bosoms, to envelop the idea of him in a mist of dread. Deepening to such horror, in the case of the more timid and imaginative of them, that when the twilight began to gather about the cottages and farmhouses, the very mention of him was enough, and that for miles up and down the river to send many of the children scaring like startled hares into the house. Gibby, in his atmosphere of human grace and tenderness, little thought what clouds of foolish fancies rising from the valleys below had by their distorting vapors made of him an object of terror to those whom at the very first sight he would have loved and served. Amongst these, perhaps the most afraid of him, were the children of the gamekeeper, for they lived on the very foot of the hill, near the bridge and gate of Glashrock and the laird himself happened one day to be witness of their fear. He inquired the cause, and yet again was his enlightened soul vexed by the persistency with which the shadows of superstition still hung about his lands. Had he been half as philosophical as he fancied himself, he might have seen that there was not necessarily a single film of superstition involved in the belief that a savage roamed a mountain, which was all that Mistress Mac fought to depriving the rumor of its richer coloring, ventured to impact as the cause of her children's perturbation, but anything a hair's breadth out of the common was a thing hated by Thomas Galbraiths, and whatever another believed, which he did not choose to believe, he set down at once as superstition. He held therefore immediate communication with his gamekeeper on the subject, who in his turn was scandalized that his children should have thus proved themselves unworthy of the privilege of their position, and given annoyance to the liberal landowner, and took care that both they and his wife should suffer in consequence. The expression of the man's face as that he listened to the laird's complaint would not have been a pleasant sight to any lover of Gibbie, but it had not occurred either to him or that the offensive being whose doubtful existence caused the scandal was the same towards whom they had once been guilty of such brutality, nor would their knowledge of the fact have been favorable to Gibby. The same afternoon the laird questioned his tenant of the mains concerning his cotters, and was assured that better or more respectable people were not in all the region of Gorm Garnet. When Robert became aware chiefly, through the representations of his wife and Donald, of Gibby's gifts of other kinds than those revealed to himself by his good shepherding, he began to turn it over in his mind, and by and by referred the question to his wife whether they ought not to send the boy to school, that he might learn the things he was so much more than ordinarily capable of learning. Janet would give no immediate opinion. She must think, she said, and she took three days to turn the matter over in her mind. Her questioning cogitation was to this effect, What need has a man to know anything but what the New Testament teaches him? Life was little to me before I began to understand its good news. Now it is more than good, it is grand. But then man is to live by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, and everything came out of his mouth when he said, Let there be this, and let there be that. 
Whatever is true is his making, and the more we know of it, the better. Besides, how much less of the New Testament would I understand now, if it were not for the things I had gone through and learned before? Eh, Robert, she answered without preface the third day. I'm thinking. There's a heap of things. Again, I had them. What helped me to can what the ma master spake to you? It would be a sin now to let the laddie learn. But why take the trouble needful to the learning of him? If he can let him gang down to the mains, and her with Donald answered Robert. He can't say handle mare, nor you or me or Gibby either. And when he's learnt eh, at Donald can show him, it'll be time to think what needst. Will answered Janet. Nan can say, but that's sense, Robert. And though I'm lathe for your sake, mare, nor my aim, to let the laddie gang, let him gang to Donald. I hope I tween the twelve they want to let them. Not among the corn, the corn's maced kutu toot new, replied Robert, and for the matter of that, twa good conscience when a blaw on ye, but he needn't gain a like a day. Gibby was delighted with the proposal. Only, said Robert, in final warning, dinna ye let them tack ye, Gibby, and score your back again, my crater, and dinna ye answer naebody, when there is spear what your cad, only thing mare nor just, Gibby, the boy laughed and nodded, and as Janet said, the baron's nick was guides the best man's word. Now came a happy time for the two boys. Donald began at once to teach Gibby Euclid an arithmetic. When they had had enough of that for a day, he read Scottish history to him. And when they had done what seemed their duty by that, then came the best of the feast. Whatever tales of poetry Donald had laid his hands upon. Somewhere about this time, it was that he first got hold of a copy of The Paradise Lost. He found that he could not make much of it, but he found also that, as before with the ballads, when he read from it aloud to Gibby, his mere listening presence sent back a spiritual echo that helped him to the meaning. And when neither of them understood it, the grand organ roll of it, losing nothing in the Scotch fowling, delighted them both. Once they were startled by seeing the gamekeeper enter the field. The moment he saw him, Gibby laid himself flat on the ground, but ready to spring to his feet and run. The man, however, did not come near them. Thank you for listening to another episode of Acresoft Story Classic.